Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Coming up on today's program, my guest, Emily Isahau, is here, Chandra Kurt. Uh, they've got all kinds of views across a variety of topics. But Emily, good morning. We'll start with you. What have you seen? Good morning, Tyler. Um, so the big news in international politics, of course, this year, uh, this week has been um, the invitation by the BRICS countries to another six countries to join the group. Um, so we can talk about the political implications of that. But I've also, uh, for a Sunday show, put the letters of the countries to an anagram generator to see if we can come up with a new acronym for the BRICS. Excellent. We'll see how that works. Uh, also, we're going to be heading uh, to Ljubljana. I'm Monocle's man in the Balkans, Guy Delaunay, and I'll be bringing you a roundup from the region, including debate over deepfakes in Serbia, the storm striking Slovenian wine, and Montenegro's most beautiful place in the world. Okay, we'll see about that. Uh, and we'll also speak to Christoph Amen, the editorial director of Zeit magazine. It's the 27th of August, 2023, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. And good morning from a rather dull, somewhat damp Zurich this morning, not uh, the gorgeous uh, weather that we had across the week. I'm here with Emma Nelson uh, today, of course, my... uh Co-anchor? Are you, are you my co-anchor? What, what, what role do you normally fulfill? What, what would you call yourself? Um, I don't know, really. Uh, wing woman? Wing woman? Occasional wing woman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, uh, Emma Nelson has been uh, here for it's nine days now. You're heading back tomorrow, which, yeah. is, uh, which is a moment of sadness. It is a moment of sadness because we've got quite used to it here. Um, yeah, so you, you know when you go on holiday and you, you sort of like walk along places and you think, could we live here? Could we? Everyone plays a could we live here game, right? And we've played the could we live here. And when I, um, when I went home, back to the flat yesterday. See, I'm calling it home. See, there you go. And my son was like, Mum, when are we moving to Zurich? I'm like, okay, we'll have to work on this a little bit. Um, But we'll, we'll see. Basically, I think I want to be a waiter in uh, in by the by the zee with that with that with those rate wages. I mean, you're you're familiar with BBC salaries. You know, <laughs> when you sort of think about what eighteen and a half thousand a month, the pound and the Swiss franc are almost on par at the moment. Uh, it's, <laughs> I'll be a waiter. I was going to say, I mean, a BBC reporter is probably not making much different if if, if uh, annually. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's absolutely, it's uh, it's one of those things and uh, a portfolio career is always a very welcome place to be. Indeed. Uh, Chandra Kurt uh, is also here, fresh from uh, Bavaria, fresh from the Tegenzeg. Great uh, to have you back, of course, uh, for re- regular listeners, of course, know that uh, Chandra uh, is the editor, of course, of, of The Wine Cellar. She is also a regular contributor here uh, as as well. And uh, wel- welcome back. Good morning. Yes, lovely to be back. And how is it feeling to be back? Well, it's still strange. I was like 10 days almost in a monastery and I was Suddenly, things are moving different and faster and louder, so I have to get used to it. Okay, so we, we can probably disclose it's not quite a monastery, it's a rather expensive one. <laughs> but you, you, were, you were at a very nice uh, clinic um, on Tegunze. Uh, and as you said, this sort of this shift, and, and, and also you think about this time of year and, and people moving, etc. Can you, without being rude, can you paint a profile of the, the type of people who are around you at this particular clinic? This who are the guests no, this the, time the, of year? The, well, it, it was like international, there were a lot of Americans, it's a lot of, um, let's say, extrovertial people. There are some, there were some families, but it's people also that want to retreat and just to be with themselves. And it's also a place, honestly, where you can work very well because you have all the quiet, everything is done, you have the space and uh, nothing disturbs you. Very good. Um, and you don't drink, you know, this And you don't drink as you well. Don't drink. Um, I'm not sure if we're going to be drinking today, maybe. Uh, of course, uh, Chandra, we're adding a, an extra element to today's program in a few minutes. Uh, of course, we'll sort of do a bit of a roundtable globally. People are going to have a few requests about what they might, what they might want uh, around their uh 
coffee table, dining table, even bedside table, maybe. Um, in terms of wine consumption, we also have a, Emma, we also, we, sort of, we have a full house today, don't you? You said that leading into the news anyway. We do. And actually, I've been in a studio of that for the last week. So bedside table and dining table and office table is kind of the same. Kind of the same thing, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Anyway, so uh, if anyone wants to join in, please raise your hand out in the audience uh, and uh, we'll come to you and uh, we'll get your wine request. Um, Emily's also uh, here uh, this morning. As you said, uh, in the lead in, we'll be talking about uh, all that happened in uh, South Africa this week in terms of that expanded uh, BRICS conference. But before that, uh, you were uh, up in the mountains yesterday. Your first first maybe last hike of the year. <laughs> That's exactly. At least of summer anyway. Yeah, exactly. It was the last proper day of summer. So I, I, I did go to Bivu and over the Septimer uh, Pass to Kasacha and Maloja or Maloja eventually. An absolutely beautiful hike, beautiful weather. It started raining and got cold as we were on the train. But I was again reminded of how accessible mountains are in Switzerland. So to Emma's point of in terms of domestic tourism, international tourism as well, you can just hop on a train in Zurich and then get on a poshed auto and really have absolutely stunning hikes in just all um, 24 hours. Uh, time to cross to London uh, as well. Our editor-in-chief, uh, Andrew Tuck, is there this morning. Uh, Andrew, any mountains to climb? Uh, no, not physical ones. <laughs> Several mental ones, I think, over the coming week. But apart, apart from that, no, all good. And, uh, and we've got the sunshine, so it's, it's quite pleasant here. Okay, well, Andrew, please send the sunshine uh, our way. That, that would be great. Uh, we do have one mountain to climb uh, this week as well. It's, uh, it's a little bit heading back to Bavaria, isn't it? Yes, it's finally time for the, the Quality of Life conference in Munich. And uh, the pace of preparations has certainly picked up over the last few days. Um, poor Hannah Grundy, who, who's the kind of master of ceremonies, uh, getting us all, all in line, all ready to do, do our bit, has been uh, <laughs> nicely chasing me, I think, every day for a little bit of copy or uh, a, bit, a bit more help with uh, another person's uh, needs. But anyway... We're, we're there. We have all the, all the speakers lined up. I've been speaking to lots of them this week about uh, what they want to talk about and, and the key points they need to get over uh, this week. So it's going to be exciting. So, Andrew, the big conversation around the table before we went on air, uh, it, of course, we have uh, a sizable uh, female contingent as well, uh, but there seems to be a bit of an age divide. I'm not sure if this has sort of reached London yet. Um, who's going to wear a dirndl and who's not going to wear a dirndl? So, uh, so this has been sort of a, a, a key, and it's, there's, there seems to be a bit of a dirndl walkout at the moment. Emma, do you want to comment on this? Well, yeah, so... so um the issue of dandel wearing was um, raised gently. I think it was a couple of days ago, wasn't it? And then um, I, I remember having a conversation with you, Tyler, about how I'm, I'm not quite really whether I feel 100% comfortable with heading down to the Dirndl hire shop in Munich as soon as I arrive on, on, on Wednesday. Um, and I sort of said to you, I'm not entirely sure whether at my age, a Dirndl is really a terribly flattering thing to wear. And the response I got from you was only semi-heart, well, sort of semi-serious about it, because I was, feeling, I was sort of testing the water and thinking, is there a three-line whip on the Dirndls here? Or... Can I can I be be excused? So I did a bit of a, a sort of a straw poll among, uh, let's say the the wiser women of the monocle cohort, and every one of them said streng verboten, no chance am I wearing a dirndl. And the word and the word that came out was, well, look a bit like a tart. Now I'm not quite sure how what your reaction is that to, to that one because I don't know whether you're now going to turn around to me and say, get down to the dirndl shop, you're wearing one on Friday evening, or even whether the gentlemen will be all obliged to, to don their lederhosen as well, which is arguably a little simpler. Well, Andrew, you like to sport your knees from time to time, so I'm wondering if, if you might go for, um, yeah, a bit of a, a thigh skimming later uh, set of lederhosen this uh, this Thursday or, or Friday or even Saturday morning. 
I thought for a moment that you were going to ask me if I had a dirndl in the wardrobe. There are many things in the wardrobe, but there's not, there's not, there's not a dirndl. Maybe that's the clue. Maybe we should do, we should do drag tract and that would get things going. But no, uh, I, I'm not opposed to a piece of uh, leather th- thigh slapping short <laughs> action. But I, I agree with Emma. You kind of need to wear it with a certain style. And we've made a wonderful film about the tradition of tract and, and why it's had this amazing resurgence in Bavaria and how young people have taken it on and adapted it. You know, you can, you can wear a, a great pair of laid hosen with a, a good sneaker. And it's just interesting to see how all of that has evolved and stayed pertinent. But I don't know. I think there's a risk as a, an outsider. You could look like a drag act as, as well or a stripper, maybe. Maybe a, a lederhosen stripper. That would, that would keep things going as well. Maybe there'll be a surprise in everyone's wardrobe when they check in on, on Wednesday. Let's, <laughs> let's, 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 just, let's just see. We we'll, might have to leave it, leave it to the people at, uh, at, uh, at Loden Fry. Uh, Andrew, just uh, maybe uh, we'll spend a little bit of time on the conference right now. Of course, part of your, part of your weekly beat is, uh, is, is, of course, presenting The Urbanist and being focused on all urban urban affairs topics. And I'm wondering, when you look at the lineup, um, the people we have assembled uh, across uh, Friday, uh, and and this is, I think this is our 10th outing of, of this conference. Uh, what topics do you want answered? Uh, or how, how do you want to sort of focus the discussion and the, and the debate? Well, we have amazing people coming. And I think some people who will talk about some reasonably contentious topics. You know, here in London, the, the notion of the 15-minute city, for example, and in Paris has been both lauded and been seen as a, a cause of consternation by many people. But we have Carlos Moreno, the, the, the man who championed this very idea, who came up with the concept, who, who connected it with, with Paris. He's coming. He's going to come and talk about what he means by the 15-minute city. And we have great civic leaders. You know, we met Eric Johnson when we did our event in Dallas. He's the, the mayor of, of Dallas. And, you know, I was chatting to him this week. He, you know, of the, the 10 big cities, uh, biggest cities in the US, he's as the only, his, his is the only one with a declining rate of, of violent crime. And you know, he's, he's a black American and he grew up in a neighborhood where he said at the time when he was a kid that you know, when he went out to play, you know, parents w- were scared that you wouldn't come back in again because it was so violent. And he's, but he, for that reason, never backed the defund the police movement. He was targeted by campaigners, but now he believes he's seeing the fruits of that decision. So we have some people who will talk about some quite contentious topics. And I hope that at the end of it, we'll also just see that you know, the things that Monocle tries to come back to, this notion of common sense, this moment of, of, of finding a sweet spot where you can both find common cause, that's the thing that I think that we'll see on stage. Because again and again, I spoke to amazing people this week, and I just, it was struck me again and again, all these people have big ideas, championing amazing causes, but how practical everybody is and how rooted they were. So yeah, it's, it's, I think it's going to be, on the city front alone, it's going to be an extraordinary conference. And I think also amazing that, of course, Munich is, uh, and you know, it's not been always the case uh, with the backdrop city or the host city that we work with, uh, that uh, they 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 they're in our sort of our top five. Um, so it's going to be also fantastic to be in a city which also lives up to so many of the values that we that we talk about um, uh, as well. Um, and then, of course, there's there's the core end that we have around sort of the, the urbanism topics. But then, of course, we sort of divert into to other angles uh, as well. So if you think of sort of um, maybe what's a little bit more at the periphery, who are you looking forward to hearing from? Well, we, we have a, a heart surgeon coming. We have a representative from Novartis coming to talk about 
both your physical health and also again how cities can re-engineer themselves to to make sure that you you're fit and healthy because of the urban environment which i think is an amazing uh, discussion we have one of the founders of uh, microlino the, the 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 tiny car company not in production numbers but in the actual physical size of the car coming and again what what's the future of mobility and i think all of those things are going to be great but we just have a, a, a nick manisa our architecture and design editor has rallied a great roster of uh, of architects who are also going to come and just talk about the work that they do, and and I think that's going to be fascinating as well. And also a lesson in advertising from uh, uh, Aurelia Rausch, the um, the creative director for um, Bergos Bank, who knew that that actually copywriting can still be in a nineteen like a 1960s, 1970s style fun, amusing, provocative. Yeah, I think we're going to have quite a bit of uh, fun with that also with one of our other speakers as well. Going back to the back catalogue of all Lufthansa ads from the 1970s, and you talk about wanting to offend people. But anyway, uh, that, will be, that will be something else. Uh, we've come to that special moment of the show, Emma. Um, maybe you want to sort of kick things off. Chandra is here. We have also a special guest around the table. Um, we're going to let Andrew have a very, very quick breather because um, he's, he's scanning the papers uh, in London as well to also uh, tell us what's happening on that side of the channel. Um, but uh, regular listeners know that this is the moment, probably happens about once, once every sort of three or four shows. Uh, we're coming to the end of summer. I think it's maybe a bit of a shift in terms of wine consumption. So Emma Nelson, uh, you've been in Zurich for the week. You've got another day here. Yes. What, what would you like to know of Chandra from the world of wine? Um, well, can I just say for the first time I've seen actually Chandra is standing <laughs> poised with an incredibly elegant um, pen, a very, very beautiful ink pen. Um, so she's clearly taking it very seriously. Chandra, tomorrow I go back to the United Kingdom after 10 very happy days here in Switzerland. We have check-in luggage, which is wonderful. I have space for one bottle. What bottle do I put in my case tomorrow? Oh, okay. That's okay. A difficult one. Okay, good. Very good. Um, Emily, over over to you. Um, I'm not sure if you're fatigued. Uh, they are sort of are the calves and thighs feeling a bit sore after that uh, climb up the Maloya Pass, or the bodies um, sorry was of the first and last hike of the season. Uh, but no, Chandra, as you know, it's been a few extremely hot uh, weeks in Zurich, but now the weather has cooled down a little bit. Um, so the wine of choice has recently been a rosé, a very light wine, uh, white wine. Um, so something along those lines, but more suitable for the slightly cooler temperatures. And I am having some spinach ricotta tortelloni later today. So if you could make all of that work. Perfect. Okay, she can work with that. Okay, Andrew, uh, for you, I guess, as a big, big week coming up, don't know if you need to fortify yourself on a Sunday. Uh, and uh, I don't think you will be seeing uh, Chandra in, in Munich, but I'm hopefully here in Zurich soon. But uh, Andrew, over to you. Well, I think we need to know what is the wine of choice when you're wearing a pair of lederhosen? <laughs> Oh, this is a new one. Yeah. Anyway, it's good that she, she added that she's also se- semi-fresh from Bavaria as well. Now, as we said at the start of the show as well, um, it's great to see, uh, yeah, I would say a familiar face uh, as, uh, well, certainly here at, uh, at Dufostrasse 90, but also uh, from Midori House uh, in London as well. Uh, Joanne Crow is here uh, and she's from Kuznacht. So also, uh, yeah, somewhat of a neighbor uh, too, but also very much uh, part of uh, the crowd down here. Uh, good morning, John. Very nice to see you. Good morning, Tyler. Uh, just, uh, well, listen, you know how this works as well. It's great you've got Chandra right beside you, uh, you know, here around uh, uh, the radio table. Uh, what would you like to know from Chandra? Well, hi- hello, Chandra. Um, in a couple of weeks, we have some friends coming to stay and it's their 40th wedding anniversary. So what I'd like to know is a really special Swiss wine 
to celebrate a 40th wedding anniversary. This is wonderful. And how, how many boxes do you think we need? <laughs> Just a couple. Okay, Chandra, maybe, Chandra can maybe also facilitate a discount as well. Listeners, uh, Chandra will be back uh, with the results on all of that for in about uh, 35 minutes' time. But, uh, Andrew, back to London. Uh, if we were to uh, flip open the Sunday Times this morning, the Telegraph, uh, what, what are the discussion points today? Well, you can tell it's end of summer because the, the politics is beginning to re-emerge. And, I, of course, in October we have the normal party uh, conferences. So lots of the, the political parties are beginning to manoeuvre a little bit with their, their big ideas because it probably will be next year that we see a general election. So it, in a way, it's a modest uh, firing of the starting gun when the, those meetings take place in October. And we, we have... It, what's interesting is the, the Labour Party are doing a very good job at stealing Conservative thunder. So Rachel Reeves, who's the shadow chancellor, has come out today to quash, which is what was going to be surely one of the things that the, the Tories would use against Labour. They're saying there will be no wealth tax, no in, increase uh, in taxes on people who own properties that they rent out so it's interesting they're they're being very blairite in in the way that they they play their politics so quite interesting on that front and then we have the the decision finally for this woman nadine doris a british uh, member of parliament very much aligned with boris johnson who didn't get a peerage she wanted to go to the house of lords and it seemed that she was uh, struck off the list by rishi sunak and so after saying she was going to resign some weeks ago, she's just clung on. So not doing any, much for her constituents. But finally, yesterday, she's agreed to go. And she's done a stinging interview about how terrible she believes Rishi Sunak to be. But unfortunately, I think that most people feel that she kind of uh, didn't do herself many favours. And then finally, the other big story, which I'm sure has been playing around the world now, I've seen it in the New York Times, is the theft of these 2,000-odd objects from the British Museum and the failure to act on the, the whistleblowing that happened some, some years ago. Andrew, where are they? Where, have, you, have, you, have you seen any sort of um, popping up in gardens or on the roof terraces? Because you're not very far from the museum as well. Well, well, no, and we, we, we drove past there, there yesterday and I, I made the joke that on the sat-nav that actually bits of the British Museum seem to be missing on the, on the, on the, on the digital map. But uh, some 2,000... So uh, very nicely, this Danish uh, art dealer who began to spot things online, on eBay of all places, so he, he alerted the British Museum that they did nothing about it. So he certainly bought up some of them. And he has, I, I believe, some 50 plus pieces that he bought on eBay, which are sitting with him and will be returned. Yesterday, uh, George Osborne, who used to be the Chancellor's Checker here and now, and now runs the museum, said that they were in the process of, of, of getting some of them back, but could take years. And, and even then, people who have bought them may not be willing to say what they have. So. It's a terrible damnation for uh, damning time for the for the museum, especially when they're fighting to keep things like Elgin marbles, claiming that they are the best place to, uh, to keep these things because they know what they're doing. <laughs> Indeed. Um, maybe, Andrew, just uh, we're going to head uh, uh, well, south and maybe a bit of a review at the top of the programme. Uh, Emily, you were talking about, of course, we had this, uh, this BRIC summit, uh, which happened, of course, with an expansion uh, of, of this group as well. Uh, and it was actually, you know, from, from afar, uh, it was, it was, they put on quite a production uh, as well. And pretty much everybody uh, you know, flew in. Uh, and if it wasn't uh, the leaders, then it was deputies um, as well. I guess first from a, your, your regular perch uh, in conflict resolution, mediation, how did you view it, but also just thinking about the timing around it as well? 
Absolutely. I mean, many analysts say that it was very much a victory for China in terms of political clout, but also for Russia, a country that has been quite isolated in, in recent years um, due to the war of aggression in Ukraine. So to have six countries be invited to uh, a group or an alliance um, that Russia is part of, so in a way, a political victory of some sort um, to Russia as well. Um, there were other uh, founding members of BRICS that at least allegedly were less keen on the idea of expansion. Um, but I think the big question is, what is BRICS all about? I mean, it's still um, a relatively loose, kind of a non-formal, a multilateral group setting. So I wouldn't be too optimistic when it comes to real policies. Uh, but at the same time, for instance, listening to the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres speak at the summit, um, he was very candid and open about the lack of a democracy in international governance, be it when it comes to the United Na uh, UN Security Council or the Bretton Woods institutions, so namely the World Bank and the IMF. With the former, the UN Security Council, I think one should be conscious of the fact that two of the BRICS countries are in fact permanent members of the Security Council. So there I wouldn't be too hopeful for any significant reform in, in, in the near future. But when it comes to the World Bank and IMF, I, I think there's a real conversation to be had. I think China represents something around 20% of global trade, yet they have only around 6% of voting power within the IMF. So in a way, it is natural that they would want to establish something to rival those institutions. And there's, of course, the BRICS uh, New Development Bank that has been put in place. How powerful that will be in the future, how powerfully it will be dominated by China in the future remains to be seen. Um, Brazil's former president Dilma Rousseff is now the president um, as of earlier this year. Um, so again, we'll have to see how it plays out. Um, but I, I think the need for um, kind of some balancing um, has been recognized in the global south. And this is one attempt to do that. One additional thing I would add, it's a very non-homogenous group of countries. You have democracies, you have authoritarian regimes, even now a theocracy having been uh, invited to the group. So in terms of political unity, apart from a, perhaps a anti-American dominant stance, um, it's hard to find too much common ground. So yeah, you also hinted that uh, you're adding a little bit of a word game uh, to, to this uh, as well, because we're talking about expansion of membership, uh, etc. It's a bit of could be a bit of an alphabet soup, Andrew. Um, maybe we're looking at also having to to maybe think about, uh, of course, um, some new names to apply to our, our foreign policy pages uh, as well. So okay, tell us, okay, tell us what, what have we got in terms of uh, maybe some new handles for BRICS? No, exactly. So uh, BRICS was very uh, convenient. Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Easy to remember, easy to write, and journalists have struggled to find an alternative. Um, so you have Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Argentina added. An anagram generator came with thousands of uh, recommendations, none of which are, are great, but I'll, I'll just highlight a few. One, maybe UAE would love this. It's BRICS is UAEE -E, uh, is one option. Um, another one is Because Iris. Uh, <laughs> maybe again, uh, not so great. Maybe Guy would like the next one, which is Serbia Q's I. Um, so maybe a link to um, the Balkans. Um, there's also Saucier Bice. Um, Saucier what? Bice, which is apparently a northern wind in, in, in uh, Lake of Constance. Um, so a Swiss link as well. Um, then there's another one, Biases Curie. Um, so maybe global biases being somehow cured. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the list goes on. There's a bus, ice, rice, air buses, ice. So again, not a really helpful list for journalists. Andrew, any of this catching your eye? Bias Curie sort of sounds like a failed couture shop or something, which had sort of trouble cutting dresses or something. Are we sticking I with Bricks, Andrew? Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not Bricks, sure. Bricks Plus? 
Well, Briggs Plus, and uh, the only thing is, seeing as so many of the, the new countries don't exactly have the, the best regimes, maybe they could be called the, the BRICS X house, you know, BRICS shit house. But anyway, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Andrew, just uh, be- before we, uh, we go to the news, uh, how, how did this, how did this uh, play out uh, as well? As you said, this is a week where, yeah, the, sort of the lens sort of swung back to uh, you know, domestic politics. Uh, it's a bank holiday tomorrow and everyone is then back into the groove pretty much uh, this week, but was there was there much focus and attention? Did you see a lot of uh, Sky uh, BBC journalists doing stand-ups, uh, live reports uh, from South Africa this week? A reasonable amount, and I, I think there is a serious point here, which is you know, that as you look at the, the the push for influence in places like Africa, you know that the West is is still always coming with this idea that investment comes with some social influence. You know that we will help in Afghanistan if you educate children who are girls. We will help you in Africa as long as you uphold the rules of democracy. Now, what you have now is a, a, a new set of investors coming and saying, look, we, we don't care what you do with your domestic politics. That's, that's down to you. We're here to provide investment. But in return, it wouldn't be bad if you voted for us when things happened at the UN. And I think it's just, unfortunately, it's a very much more persuasive idea. And it also, it, 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 it chimes with many of these countries. What we're seeing in, in, you know, in, 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 in Africa at the moment, in Niger, in Chad, is that people are just a bit fed up of being told by old colonial masters about what their version of democracy should be. So there's, there's now an alternative. And I think it's going to be persuasive. I think lots of people will want to be part of this. And there's, it's not just a commonality of hating the US. It's a feeling that they have their own ideas and want to press their own path. So it's, it's, it's not going to stop. Andrew Tuck uh, in London. Uh, of course, stick around to the end of the show so you can figure out what to uh, consume when you're wearing and slapping your uh, leather thighs uh, later <laughs> later this week. It's uh, just uh, 10.30, call it 10.30 and uh, 40 seconds. Emma Nelson's here with the news in Zurich. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. Three US Marines have been killed and 20 injured after a military helicopter crashed during exercises in Australia. The Osprey came down on its way to islands north of Darwin. Five of the Marines are said to be in a serious condition. Meanwhile, three Ukrainian fighter pilots, including a well-known pilot who went by the call sign Juice, have died in a plane crash. The Ukrainian Air Force said crews of two combat trainer aircraft collided in the sky while performing a combat mission. The French government's allocating 200 million euros to destroying surplus wine and to support producers. It comes as demand for wine drops, plus the fear of overproduction and the effects of the cost of living crisis. The alcohol will be turned into hand sanitizer, cleaning products and perfume. A single waiter working here in Zurich has earned an estimated 16,500 francs in June. A new wage model that the well-known restaurateur Michel Peclard has introduced in his lakeside restaurants allows waiters to earn 7 or 8% of the restaurant's turnover. And a zoo in Florida has devised an event to increase its membership. Visit to Jacksonville Zoo are being invited to a goats and wine evening. You start with a glass of wine served al fresco and then a herd of Nigerian dwarf goats arrives. The zoo has warned members that you must be ready with a keen ability to stop the lively little creatures from spilling your drinks. And those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler. Okay, I don't know if our our audience can see Chandra's face right now. Certainly, I know our listeners can't uh, as well. But Emma, maybe can you somehow break this story down for us? Because this this is to boost zoo attendance is it to boost which would obviously include zoo revenues this is obviously you know you buy buy a ticket to a special event they're 
obviously probably going to flee, literally fleece you um, <laughs> with uh, to, to, of course, consume probably not a great bottle of wine. Uh, wait, what's, the, what's the motivation behind I don't, this? Well, I we mean, frankly, it, it's self-evident, surely, goats and wine. I mean, what well, more I mean, could you ask for for an outdoor evening? Well, listen, I mean, you've got goat cafes, of course, uh, and owl cafes and, you know, et cetera, in Tokyo. So this could be sort of the next extension of that. Tandra, how would you feel about having a glass of wine and then a herd of Nigerian dwarf goats approaching? Because it's that compromise you have to make, is it cuddle the goat or keep the wine? Because it clearly appears from from what the warnings are on the website that the, you have to sort of choose which is which is your priority. Maybe the goats need also a detox like I did. Yeah, or so, <laughs> I, I thought, I, thought, or, or I, I don't thought. think the wine. I don't think the goats drink the wine. I think it's it's quite a strange story. I, I, but Chandra, I thought you were going to say what wine goes well with a goat curry. Maybe yeah. that that yeah. could also be be part of it as well. And maybe they don't feel the same way at the zoo. No, maybe, maybe not. Um, I'm not sure if there's also a, maybe a similar theme uh, happening um, in the Balkans, which is where we're heading right now uh, to Ljubljana. Uh, our correspondent, our man in the Balkans, Guy Delaney, is there for us this morning. Good morning, Guy. Morning, Tyler. And morning, all. And can I just add, I just found a pig cafe in Kamakura in uh, Japan. <laughs> uh, well, staying yeah, yeah. there. Well, we want to talk. We want to hear all about your trip to, to Japan as well. Uh, was that the only animal themed cafe that you, that you found? Because I, there's there's not far from our office. There is there is the owl cafe. There is uh, there is the goat cafe, which has trees and and small hills for the goats uh, to climb. Which is also that's a big deployment of real estate in in Tokyo to uh, to say we're going to plant a tree and also have small mountains for goats to climb, um, which suggests that obviously these places do well. But what else did you spot in Japan, guy? Well, I mean, apart from the, 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 the pig cafe, I mean, there was an awful lot of uh, kawaii culture, as you'd expect. So my children were going a bit bonkers for everything Pokemon uh, orientated. So that was all very wonderful. Um, but for me, it was 18 years since my last visit to Japan, which bearing in mind the last time, you know, that I used to live there in the 1990s, it was, I saw quite a lot of changes, to be honest with you, Tyler. I saw many, many more foreigners uh, than the used to, uh, than you know I used to see when when I was living there, um, to the extent that the the little hangouts that I used to have in Shinjuku for going to little noodle shops and izakaya and places like that, um, they now seem very very touristy indeed. And this is despite the fact that uh, the news in Japan was saying that uh, the number of Chinese tourists is still only about a fifth of the number that it was before the pandemic. So I mean I know you're a much regular visitor than I am these days, but that was the thing which struck me the most. Indeed. And when you, uh, of course, surveyed uh, the people maybe standing in a taxi queue or, or on the train with you, um, where, where were they from? Um, I heard an awful lot of Spanish accents, oddly enough. In fact, these are the people who were, you know, we were exchanging photograph taking. It was rather nice, actually, because you don't often get asked by people uh, to take a photograph these days, do you? Everybody's doing selfies. And that time-honoured ritual of handing over the, uh, the point-and-shoot camera and saying, would you mind just taking a snap of me and my friends or me and my family? Um, that one seems to have gone. But when you're dealing with um, monuments such as uh, the, the Great Buddha in Kamakura, um, you can't really do justice to that with a selfie. You're not going to be able to get it in the frame properly. So the only option you have is to ask somebody else to take the snap for you. And it did seem to be a large number of people from Spain that we were meeting. Um, and that, that, uh, that again was something of a surprise. I didn't know that uh, uh, Japan was such an attractive destination for, for, for people from Spain. Now, Guy, of course, uh, Japan is not your patch or your regular patch. That is, of course, that belongs to our colleague uh, Fiona Wilson. But nevertheless, great having your analysis. Week in, week out, you're always, uh, of course, talking about uh, various stories which you know, pertain to Balkans Incorporated. We're talking about various companies, etc. Now, if you were a a trade observer and you've, you've sort of were spinning around and you, you've done your time in Japan, 
Where are the business opportunities for Balkan companies? I mean, I, I've found you know, a bit of organic wine from Slovenia on the odd table mm. uh, in, uh, you know, probably in and around our office in Tommy Guy, which seems to be the global epicenter of, uh, of very fizzy wines from obscure places in Europe. Uh, but uh, what, what else uh, do we, could, could you see yeah, being exported from Croatia, Slovenia, Serbia, elsewhere? You, you hit the nail on the head there, I think, Tyler. I mean, there was a place just around the corner from where we were staying, which was uh, billing itself as a natural wine bar. And that's very much where Slovenia has been targeting its its, its wine development over, the, over in recent years. The number of orange Slovenian wines that you can find, I think, is out of proportion to the number of reds and whites uh, that did you'd find, uh, certainly here and, and probably in other countries as well. So I think there is an opportunity for, for Slovenia to find a niche there. And, and as you know, Tyler, in Japan, Everybody, you, you, it's so big, uh, you know, 120 plus million people in Tokyo, of course, um, being as Tokyo is, if you find a niche, there will be people that will want to share that niche with you and they'll, they'll enthusiastically jump in. Um, so I think that's definitely an opportunity. Uh, for, for winemakers in, in this region. And then apart from the winemakers, um, the, the thing that we're particularly good at in the Western Balkans, in countries like Serbia, North Macedonia, Bosnia, is uh, fruit production. And when I look at the, the fruit that's in the shops in Japan for, for, for the, the gift-giving seasons, and you know the kind of things I mean, you know, where you've got a, a dozen grapes and they're costing uh, 30,000 yen, um, you're beautifully presented in a lovely box. Well, why not get some of that from, from the Balkans? Serbia um, says they produce the best raspberries in the world. Um, so why not uh, exploit some of that and get some of those in there, get some of the, the fine fruit brandies for, that are being produced in the Western Balkans, more and more, not just the rocket fuel that, that you get from your, your next door neighbour, but actually you know, refined stuff with a story behind it. I think all of that would go down very well in Japan. Let's just go back to uh, Slovenian wine production uh, and and specifically your patch. You were probably out of the country at the time, though, but of, of course, yeah. uh, there have been quite extraordinary uh, storms, like there have been uh, seemingly all over the world, but certainly uh, in, in Europe of late, and we saw, you know, rivers uh, bursting their banks, uh, mudslides, all kinds of things. And I'm wondering uh, what this has done uh, and how, well, certainly for wine production, how the, how the farmers yeah. are feeling. Well, the, the wine producers are, are particularly disgruntled, and it's it's a disaster coming on top of of weeks of weather woe. Um, because as one of them put it, we, we already had non-stop sogginess from March until now. And then, of course, you've got the, the rivers bursting their banks and affecting um, the, the vineyards in the regions close to the rivers. And it, it's been, you know, if you're looking at um, and any of the regions in Slovenia, you're, ne you're never far from a river, frankly. Uh, and that's why the floods were so extensive. It's, it's the worst natural disaster in the country's history. Very little loss of life, thankfully. But very big damage in terms of just the, the landslides, influx of water, influx of mud, things which are really going to damage the, the production of the vineyards. And they're looking to be harvesting in the next couple of weeks. And they're wondering, you know, what grapes do we have and what sort of state are they going to be in when we harvest them? I mean, just to give you an early warning, it's not looking good for Sauvignon Blanc. Well, I have to bring in our, our wine expert here on that. Uh, of course, Chanda's been very busy uh, working on wine recommendations. Uh, but Chanda, what are you hearing uh, from all of the vineyards that, that you deal with? Of course, it's been up and down weather uh, all, all over Europe. Sometimes you're surprised at what sounds like a horrific summer, actually, actually 
leads to actually not a bad or even a good harvest. Uh, but when you're talking to Portugal, Spain, yeah. your friends in Italy, France, what are you hearing right now? Well, I think this year is a typical year that shows you how difficult it is to to know how you how your how your vintage will be because in all different regions they had different results. Like in France, you had this mildew, this attack, so they lost sometimes 40% of their harvest. Switzerland looks very good, so they are all happy. And and then you have suddenly a flood, something from from climate that happens. So it is um it is up and down this year. So it's, it's very difficult. If, if, if I put myself in the in, in the mind of a winemaker, it must be horrible, you know, because you cannot preview it goes this way, next year it goes that way. So so very unrest, I would say. And just Guy was talking about orange wine. Do you think we've actually reached the peak now globally of, of orange wines? Was this I don't or, think so. I don't think it's so. It's going to continue to... Yeah, because you have this movement, you have, you know, you have, we are in a time of extremes, you have like the mainstream, but then you have a new generation that doesn't want to follow that and they want other wines, so they want orange wine, they will, in, they will not even taste the other wines, they will want more of this. And this is growing because also you have a good conscience in the end because you think you drink a, something better. Uh, maybe it doesn't taste better, but, but in your mind you think you do something good. So I, I, I don't think at all, I think it's just starting. And if you see the evolution in all the wine labels, what they do, it's, it's fascinating. Emma's sort of looking rather skeptical about all of that. Guy, I, I can't see your, your expression on that, but uh, it was sort of a, a long a look down the nose. And Well, I'm looking over my glasses at Chandra going, hang on a minute. So so I, I can completely understand a generation wishing to try something new, but on the, on the occasions when I have been given orange wine, I, everybody... Dare I suggest that there is occasionally a bit of an emperor's new clothes with this thing, that everybody drinks it and says, gosh, it's amazing. And I'm quietly sitting there going, my mouth is really not having any fun at this precise moment. Can I just have a glass with something crisp and white and, I don't know, not natural wine, an unnatural wine? I don't understand the difference. Maybe you could just elaborate a little bit about how you do find good orange wine without there being an, an enormous amount of pretension attached to it. In 30 seconds or less, because we have to get back to Ljubljana. <laughs> they, they, always were, they always existed, but they never said that they exist. You have you now a new movement that they say they're orange, but they're differently made. And I think, you know, this maybe we are not the target group for these wines. Too old to drink orange wine. I do all the time. <laughs> okay. Guy, just Thanks, uh, we don't want to choose favourites, uh, but uh, I'm gonna, we've got, you've got three stories. We can go to Serbia. Uh, you've also got something from Bosnia. You've got something from Montenegro uh, as well. Where do you want to go next? Uh, let's go to Serbia, where deep fakes have been causing something of a kerfuffle, Tyler. And, and this is an, an interesting variety of deep fake. I'm not sure we can quite exactly label them a deep fake. It depends what you want to, how you, how you make the definition. Um, but it, it, I've watched these, and it, it's quite interesting what's happened with them, in that Serbian opposition politicians, they've had video clips taken of them from them speaking on a news programme. And another broadcaster, which is very close to the governing party, has altered the audio with the help of artificial intelligence. So it's exactly these opposition leaders' voices that you're hearing. And they're saying all sorts of things which are basically ridiculing themselves, insulting other opposition politicians, uh, and basically making everybody other than the government look bad. And as I say, if you were a casual viewer, if you were just looking at these clips, you'd think they were actually saying these things. I, I, I was quite... Uh, struck by how difficult it would have been to tell that those weren't the actual words that those political leaders were speaking. 
and they're very upset about it. And they say they're going to sue this broadcaster, Pink TV. Um, Pink TV says, that, you know, hey, it's just satire. It's just a bit of fun. It's no different from the kind of spitting image uh, kind of show that, that, that we've been doing in the past. Uh, the broadcast regulator says, no, it's very naughty. You're going to have to put a label on this content clearly throughout if you're going to do it. Um, to which the, uh, the, the broadcaster says, well, you're trying to kill satire if you do that sort of thing. Uh, but... Uh, I personally, I, I think it's rather worrying when you've got a country like Serbia where the media has already been very much captured by the governing party. You've got these very convincing AI-manipulated clips. It's really not going to help. Uh, Guy, just very quickly, uh, because we have uh, quite a, a strong uh, logistics theme uh, at our conference in Munich uh, this week. Uh, and there's an interesting story out of, out of Bosnia, which very much plays uh, into the business of getting uh, products from A to B in a timely fashion. And very much the case of, uh, will the last lorry driver out of Bosnia please turn off the lights? Because they're worried that now that Germany, as of this month, is recognising without any special processing Bosnian professional driving licences, uh, that the few remaining HGV drivers will be leaving the country. And this is uh, an issue all across the Balkans right now. Germany has a hunger for workers in essential professions. It needs hundreds of thousands of them, and it's throwing open and welcoming arms to people from the Western Balkans who all jumping at the chance to quadruple their pay in essence. A Bo uh, Bosnian lorry driver can earn four times as much working in Germany as they can in Bosnia and they're off. And Guy, just finally, before we go very quickly, um, actually, you get to discuss all of your stories because also you, uh, we put this in the menu uh, as well. And this takes us uh, to, to Montenegro. And I need your, your, your spin on this because obviously yeah. there, this is quite a proclamation, uh, but does Guy Delaney buy it? Um, no, he doesn't. <laughs> no, not Charlie, he doesn't. And the, the person making this proclamation, or the outlet making this proclamation, is Time Out. And they have listed the 30 most beautiful places in the world. And at number one is Kotor Bay in Montenegro. And that's their absolute number one. And uh, I don't buy it because, okay, I, I quite like Kotor, I quite like Kotor Bay, but it's got its problems. And the number one problem is usually people and the sheer number of them. And it's, <laughs> yeah, there we are. Uh, hell is other people, after all. And, you know, the cruise ships that come in disgorging thousands of people at the same time, that's a problem for Kotor. And th the only thing I can say at the moment that Kotor has gotten its favour more than usual is that the nearest airport, Tivat, is reporting arrivals are down by 40% compared to pre-pandemic. That's largely because of sanctions against Russia, Russians being um, the number one foreign nationality, if we don't include Serbia, uh, in terms of people who come in to Montenegro. So uh, you might get it a little more quiet than usual, but that's usually the problem with Kotor. Guy Delaney in uh, Ljubljana this morning for us. Uh, thanks very much for that. Uh, yeah, Emily, any, any thoughts? Montenegro, have you been? Have you climbed any mountains there? Kotor Bay? So I'm embarrassed to say that, but I've never really uh, traveled to the Balkans. So I'll add it onto the list, but perhaps just for a quick visit and then go somewhere a bit more peaceful, just based on Guy's description. Emma, hol holidays in Croatia? Um, well, I think Emily and I will go and do on a field trip and report back to you because <laughs> I haven't been either. But it doesn't. It, I, guy is wise. I'll, I'll follow what guy's advice, and if it's too busy, then too busy. Yeah, and Chandra, we're just talking about, of course, this uh, Slovenian vineyards uh, and also Croatia as well. I'm sure there's good Serbian wines too. Um, 
You've never been either? No, but it's on my list. Okay, it's extraordinary. Because <laughs> guess what? I've never been either. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I think there's a job for the, the tourism organizations to do. And we should maybe ask our, our next guest, because uh, we're heading to Berlin uh, right now to speak uh, to Christoph Amund, uh, the editorial director of Zeit magazine uh, there. Uh, guten Morgen. Guten Morgen, Tyler. Good morning, everyone. So tell us about your travels through the Balkans. Well, <laughs> not so much experience on my side either, but I'm heading to uh, Munich uh, next week. And uh, I'm sure as you're all aware that Munich used to be a hotspot for many uh, migrants from the Balkans. And there's a lively restaurant scene based on the Balkan cuisine uh, in Munich. There always has been since the 1980s. And so... Maybe we're going to find out about some uh, new restaurant uh, from Croatia or from someone from Serbia in Munich at the end of next week. And I'm also reflecting about your lederhosen looks. Yeah, so okay, I might, tell, I might, tell I might, us, I might help just, us on that. Well, I might just, uh, might just uh, join you, jump in, 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 in the conference to check out Andrew's lederhosen looks on stage. Okay, he's, he's probably very, very, very much looking forward uh, to, to that. And uh, now you've really sort of put the fear of God uh, in him as he's uh, probably about to reconnect from London uh, right now. Now, I don't want you to give away your editorial lineup, but uh, as you said, uh, there's, there's quite an interesting, obviously, Balkan scene uh, in uh, the, 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 the Bayerische Hauptstadt. Does that, does that mean we can expect a Wochenmarkt? Uh, of course, for our listeners, this is uh, one of that magazine's spin-offs, a fantastic food magazine that they uh, produce. Uh, is that going to be filling your pages? Uh, well, yeah, depending on my research at uh, next week in Munich, I guess. But yeah, we're actually working on the new issue. It's going to come out in the fall. And um, uh, I'm now writing a sort of a restaurant cafe column about new restaurants and cafes that I come across wherever I am. So I might include one of those from Munich. Just to tell us, I'm very, uh, well, I just always intrigued uh, when I sort of, of course, scan the world uh, and, uh, and have the, the luxury of chatting to, to fellow editors. Uh, what else are you working on? Are there any new projects, any new launches that you can disclose uh, live this morning uh, on Monocle on Sunday? We've heard about all kinds of concepts bubbling up, but maybe I've missed the press releases this summer. Yeah, I mean, we just launched the first uh, episodes of our Wochenmark podcast which is uh, our f the first food podcast by Zeit. Uh, it's hosted by Elisabeth Reiters, also the uh, columnist of our Wochenmarkt uh, column in the magazine. And she's, um, yeah, she's, she's inviting politicians to cook with her in her kitchen. And uh, wh what I love about that podcast uh, so much is its sound. You know, the production company really managed to, to get you inside the kitchen. If you're, if you're listening to it, you're, you're listening to a conversation two people uh, cooking together and but you also hear the sounds of cooking so it's really sort of very nice adventure like just listening to uh, two people talking cooking and the only problem is that at the end of the episode you really are hungry which which is no bad thing i'm curious also because is it is it always the whole focus of the program it's just uh, of course the host editor and the politician that is that's what i get for my full 30 minutes or one hour however long i tune in or are there other aspects and components to the program the same way the magazine is. Yeah, no, it's, it's really sort of, it, it, it's all about the same feeling as the magazine because the magazine is focused on the idea of uh, great but simple food and many recipes that you can really enjoy if you're not a very good cook. Uh, so but you can just, you know, put in great ingredients and, and have, have really nice dinners or lunches. And so the idea for the podcast is really pretty much the same thing. It's very easy, very down to earth, um, 
but also just very enjoyable to listen to. Let's move out of the world of, of digital and, and, and audio and, uh, and to, the, to the printed page or certainly uh, the fonts on screen. Uh, anything else uh, coming up that we can look forward to this autumn? Of course, Men's Special must be with us, I would imagine, uh, in, in the coming weeks. Uh, your wonderful compendium uh, in, in English that you've done, uh, of course, of the best of the year. Uh, and uh, yeah, listen, it's the worst kept secret in publishing, which is that there's going to be a women's magazine as well. <laughs> Yeah, we're still we're still working on that um, idea of, of how to, to sort of launch a, a women's you know product. Probably not only a magazine these days, um, but um, yeah, I mean the, the the new spin-offs for the men's title is coming up. I've I've written the just written the the, the cover story for Tight Magazine Man with a very let's say famous director talking about his his oeuvre and his life. And um, but I've also actually. Uh, because we were talking about South, Southern Germany or Austria, uh, I've just written a little piece for a, a tight Austria edition, which also comes out every week, uh, about my favorite non-alcoholic drink, soda citron, which is like soda and freshly squeezed lemon. And in, in Austria, it's, it's a very big tradition. I mean, everyone knows it, every restaurant, every cafe serves it. But uh, strangely enough, it hasn't conquered the German market. So I'm really trying to explain to the German uh, restaurants and and cafe uh, um, uh, owners to please start serving soda citron in Germany as well. It's such a great, fresh drink in the summer. But uh, in Germany, we're still missing out on this, and I really don't understand why. Um, Christoph, we're, we're very much looking forward uh, to seeing you. Uh, of course, you're, you're heading south uh, from Berlin. Uh, we'll see you in Munich later later in the week. Um, just quickly, does that uh, also suggest that you're going to be continuing your, your track south? Because uh, we know you like a bit of a holiday in Italy. Have you had a holiday this summer? Well, yeah, I went to Greece. I went to uh, um, Naxos, the beautiful island, and uh, stayed there with friends and enjoyed the uh, the scenery there, although since then, of course, the fires have been lighting up the country in a very dramatic way. And I've, I've, actually, this summer, I've been reflecting on the fact that, you know, how long will sort of the, the, the tourism work in these, you know, southern European countries and, and how, how climate change will, will change that industry? I mean, it's already changing it, but I guess this summer it really kind of showed that, that we're heading into a different era, I guess. And there you are. There you are, listeners. There is a Zeit magazine cover uh, created live on air. We look forward to that uh, special because I can see how well uh, Zeit, uh, your Zeit crew uh, could do that. Christoph Amen, look forward to seeing you uh, in Munich uh, later in the week. And that was Christoph Amen, uh, Zeit magazine's uh, editorial director, joining us from Berlin this morning. Uh, four more minutes to go uh, on this program. Andrew Tuck is back uh, with us in London. Uh, Joanne, of course, uh, has uh, trekked back up here, not from Kuznacht, but, but just from uh, three chairs away because... Uh, it is time to get uh, the wine recommendations from Chandra. I forgot who started. Emma, I think you started, didn't you? So what you're, look, you're heading back. We know that you're leaving. Uh, and what are you looking for? Um, just one beautiful bottle to put in my case. Uh, Chandra, can I just... I've never seen Chandra do this before. And the elegance and the thoroughness of her work for the last half hour has been absolutely breathtaking. Now I'm blushing. How, how do I speak? <laughs> Okay, so Emma, you posed me a very good question, but a very difficult one because you want to put the Swiss wine culture in one bottle and bring it home and you have memories at home. So 
It, I even brought the wine today here, as if I knew you, this question is coming. I will go for our main white grape, which is a Chasselas. And you take a traditional one from the Monsieur Grand Monsieur du Chasselas, Monsieur Beauvoir. And it's a Désolée, La Medinette. Um, you will drink it and you see the Lake of Geneva, you see the mountains, and you will want to come back soon again here. Thank you, Chandra. I, I really like that image of you being on your terrace in London, seeing... <laughs> Lac la main. Uh, <laughs> I'll have to close my eyes. I know, in- indeed. <laughs> Maybe Chandra, while while we while we move on, uh, or, or or Desi or someone can reach for that uh, that lovely bottle because there is a bit of a tasting moment, uh, which is happening around uh, the the table uh, as as well. But uh, I'll go to Emily just uh, while we're pouring. You were uh, looking for what, sir? Looking for something for the cooler temperatures we have in Switzerland, and I will be having some tortelloni later today. This is, uh, this is perfect because it's a wine you really need to eat with it because it's quite a little bit heavy. It's a white wine. And as you, as you passed the Bündner Herrschaft when you came home from, from your hiking, I will go for a Completer from Johnny Bonner. Completer is an indigenous grape from, from the Rizon. It is really complex and, and it warms you from the first sip. And, and you will, will see it, it. You have to think about it because the taste will change with every sip. So it's very interesting, but eat with it. And Completer from Johnny Bonner is the, the movement to the autumn time. Wonderful. I need to now ask you where to get it, but we can have that off air. Good. Andrew, Tuck, no jokes about Johnny Boner and uh, the name of his vineyard, but uh, over to you. <laughs> no, I'm just wondering if, if uh, I'm going to get something very full-bodied offered to me now, but let's, uh, let's see. Not full-bodied. So remind us, Andrew, <laughs> you were looking for a wine that fulfilled what? Well, well, it's, we're going to Germany. We're going to be in Munich. We're in, in, in Bavaria, and... I presume that there's something, because most people associate beer with, with being dressed in your tracton, but I wonder whether there is a, an opportunity to find a good wine that goes as well with that, that, that Bavarian moment. Well, actually, I thought about Lederhosen when you told me your brief, and um, and it's like a, a rough wine. When and, and in Germany, you know, you, they drink a lot of beer. So I thought we have, unfortunately, to go to the natural wine scene. And so you're a little bit similar in taste. And uh, in, by the way, in Munich, go to the Zero Dosage wine bar. It's a natural wine bar, so you can discover more. It's an orange wine that also looks a little bit like a beer. And it's from Sepp Muster from the Steiermark, a Sauvignon Blanc, but it tastes like a mixture of, of a beer and a cider. So you will have a, a special taste. How perfect. And maybe I could even have it served in a Stein so people don't realize that I'm not drinking beer. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, we've got about a minute to, to, to go. So Chandra, 20 seconds or less. Joanne, you were looking for what? I was looking for a special Swiss wine for friends, Helen and Adrian, who are coming to Zurich to celebrate their 40th wedding anniversary. You didn't, you didn't say Swiss wine before. Ah. You said 40 years wedding, so I didn't go to Switzerland. Now this will be fast. I wouldn't know, maybe a sweet wine. But so I thought you, you have to take a Bordeaux, 1983. It was a, a rich vintage. Go to the left bank like a, like a Saint-Julien and you will find nice wines. Thank you. You're welcome. Chandra, Chandra, thank you. Emma, great having you here uh, all of this week. And uh, of course, we'll be seeing you in Munich thank on Wednesday evening. Thank you for evening. such a warm welcome. I've loved every minute. Loved it. Emily Sauer, also Chandra, Emma Nelson, thanks for that. Also, Andrew Tuck, Guy Delaney and Christoph Amon joining us from Berlin. Our producers today, Desiree Bendley and Emma Nelson and our studio manager back in London was Tamsin Howard. We're going to be broadcasting live from Munich uh, all day Friday. So we'll see you then. Have a good week. Goodbye.